In the mid-90s, we started seeing a new type of car on California streets to fulfill a mandate that 2% of cars sold in the Golden State be zero emissions. By 1998, electric vehicles started popping up. General Motors began leasing its EV1 electric auto to consumers in 1996. It seemed that in urban areas, this new car could do wonders for the smog situation and would do so without major investments in new technology. But something went wrong. Despite finding a solid niche in the California market, the state decided that it would relax the requirements that manufacturers sell a certain percentage of cars without emissions. GM soon called back its pioneering and seemingly successful EV1 and, before you know it, crushed them up and ground them to bits of metal and plastic. What was behind the snuffing of a promising technology? Well, Who Killed the Electric Car examines this automotive whodunit, and as in any murder mystery, there are multiple suspects. Director Chris Payne's documentary exonerates one such suspect in the case while explaining where the blame lies among several guilty parties. It's a fascinating tale about a real-life conspiracy of elements hostile to electric automobiles. We're pleased he's here to talk to us today about his film. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Chris Payne. Hey, thanks a lot. Chris, your promotional materials, which is among the best we've ever really gotten, uh, preparatory to an interview, tells us that you were one of those people who leased an EV1 in 1997. You were quite enamored with it straight away. Let's tell us about what you, what you loved about the electric car personally. What I liked is that you never went to the gas station, and you just uh, plug in the car in the garage overnight, and actually you get most of your charge, at least on my first EV1, in about 45 minutes. So uh, you'd wake up in the morning with a full tank, and off you'd go. And I thought this would be a big... Uh, my, be a challenging thing to work into my life, but pretty soon I, I became kind of a convinced that this is the sort of the car of the future. So when they took these cars from us, uh, we we go, this is just crazy. What's going on here? Why why is why can't more consumers have have this experience and see what they think? The car has some great quotes. There's a trailer for it that's appearing in theaters all over the uh, the Sacramento area. You're clearly not the only person who was uh, in, in love with the car. I thought the best uh, single line maybe in your documentary comes from actor Ed Begley, who notes that the electric car is not for everyone, and I'll let you finish it. <laughs> it's not for everyone, just for 90% of the population. Which is a great line, and, and true. We tried, We got Ed in there because he's such a, you know, he obviously represents like someone that's really trying to live off the grid and, and uh, do the right thing from his environmental perspective. And then we went after lots of people that uh, are, you know, from the right side, right wing, and, and, and people from all walks of life who are just concerned about why it's so hard for America to get off of, uh, get off of gasoline, why it's so hard for us to kick the foreign oil habit. And the electric car is a great step in that direction. So the fact that that couldn't happen when it did was, uh, is indicative of some of the kinds of challenges we face. Well, you certainly did stitch together quite a, uh, an assortment of people talking about this, uh, as varied as Mel Gibson and a former CIA director, which was impressive. Yeah, Jim Woolsey, who was a uh, CIA director for years. And, you know, th- these guys are about, God, this is uh, oil dependence is such a bad deal. But we also went and we found uh, Phyllis Diller and lots of people who have had electric car experiences that you wouldn't expect and to get their kind of like their take on the whole story. Well, you, you have a number of suspects uh, that, you, that, you, that you examine in the film. You exonerate one, at least, in, in the murder of the EV-1. That would be the issue of the batteries that it used. Some people claim the technology was not up to the task, but, but you say not guilty. Tell us why. Well, the idea of the electric car is not to replace the gasoline car in every case. And where the electric car, the pure electric car, really works well is as a commuter vehicle in, uh, in urban areas. And even with the inexpensive batteries that take a car like 60, 70 miles round trip, 
you're, uh, you're still solving a lot of transportation issues. And the car companies, one of the things they said about the car was, hey, you know, batteries, people won't drive a car that won't take them 300 miles on a charge. And certainly there's a place in the marketplace for a limited-range car. Uh, it, it really, uh, I think the average commute for an American is 30 miles a day. So this can really, can really work in places. But on the other side, the plug-in technology, if they had let it evolve, and it's coming back, that's the good news in all this. You have plug-in hybrids, which allow you to drive 50 miles on uh, electric power, and then the gas engine kicks in after that. Now, uh, Chris, maybe the most fascinating aspect personally for me in your film was to see a guy whose name had been bandied about in the late 70s and 80s turn up again. That's Stanford Oshinsky. He was the man behind the battery. You show that he also invented a cheaper type of solar panel that would have been a huge plus to generate electricity in a green way. Can you talk about that aspect of needing to generate electricity in a more uh, environmental-friendly way and how that plugs into the electric car? Well, the, the, the big picture is getting us off foreign oil and getting us on the killer app energy, which is electricity. And right now in the U.S., 55% of that electricity comes from coal. Now, even on a 55% coal-fired electric grid like we have now, an electric or plug-in car reduces CO2 emissions by half. So it's a, it's a great step. But as you can clean up that electric grid, and solar is a great way to do it, and wind is an amazing way to do it, you can get a cleaner and cleaner and cleaner car. And so that's why the last bit of the film talks about uh, uh, Stanford Oshinsky's uh, thin film solar cells, which you can put on the roof of your house and you know be generating your own electricity at home. Well, see, in the late 70s, when, when people like, like myself were in college uh, having various sessions of how we might save the world in the future, it seemed quite clear that, uh, that hydrogen fusion and perhaps people like Oshinsky's cheaper solar panels were going, were going to revolutionize the world. Is there sort of a, I guess you might say, a co-conspiracy to sandbag some of these, uh, these solar cells as well as the car? Well, I'm not a conspiracy guy, per se. I, I really believe that just vested interests um, defend the way they make money. And unfortunately, the way people make money, the biggest two industries in the country, besides the military, I guess, the, the two primary ones are the internal combustion engine and the oil industry. So the technology's out there for getting around these technologies. It's just uh, there's a lot of obstacles and maybe you could say systemic problems we have in, in getting this, this out there. Now, the good news is that there's an incredible amount of brilliant engineers and people that are willing to go around the big systems, and hopefully the big systems will catch on. Well, one aspect that was really fascinating in, in Who Killed the Electric Car was uh, this idea of, of a phony grassroots movements, the sort of astroturfing they've been called. In this case, the American auto manufacturers uh, were behind a PR campaign, uh, this fake grassroots movement to, to repeal the zero emissions vehicle. Uh, of course, they had their own vested interests. Can you talk a bit about, about that subplot? Well, sure. I mean, there was actually a bunch of these phony groups. The oil industry has had the most of them. They had uh, something like Californians Against Utility Company Abuse. And this is a so-called consumer group that was complaining that they didn't want to give utilities any subsidies to build charging stations. And it's the, the height of hypocrisy for the oil industry to complain about this when they take huge tax breaks on the refineries they have and all kinds of other subsidies they get. So... They, uh, they, they mounted this campaign, and then the automakers had, a, uh, had an effort to try to discredit consumer interest in electric cars. And when, when these industries do this, it just makes it so hard for change to happen. Of course, that's what we need. We need change, and we need to evolve things. So I hope the movie like gives people some tools and see what's, uh, what's going on in terms of blocking this change. Well, you mentioned tax breaks. The movie brings out the fact that the Hummer at one point had a $100,000 
uh, tax break, which certainly puts it at a great advantage versus an EV1. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, this is it. I mean, when you have highly capitalized industries like uh, auto and oil and so forth, you need government pressure to try to lead these industries in the right direction. And it wasn't helpful, uh, I, I would argue, or many people argue in the film, that you had a $100,000 tax deduction for a 6,000-pound SUV. And I think the maximum tax credit you could get on, a, on an electric car was $4,000. So government really can guide the future, but uh, hopefully with, with a wiser leadership, we can incent the right kinds of technology. When you talk about people, uh, opinion leaders, people directing the populace, in the movie you judge consumers among those guilty in the death of the EV1. But, of course, you also point out there's a lot of, a lot of this consumer resistance was being uh, paid for by big oil and, and car makers. I know. Well, the, the car industry claims that the reason the electric car died was nobody wanted it. And, of course, the fact is nobody knew about this car, <laughs> almost nobody. And th- that's just crazy. But, but we did give the, the car company the benefit of the doubt on that because when the electric car came out, you know, everybody was in love with SUVs and people weren't going out of their way to search out new technology. And hopefully uh, now people are going to be much more aware of options to, you know, buying, buying gas guzzlers and that will really help the resurgence of electric cars and plug-in hybrids. Well, Chris, as, as we're talking, I'm looking here on the web in front of me uh, of a picture of you standing in front of uh, some electric automobiles, and you mentioned prominently the story that you own, you still own an electric car. They were selling Toyotas that were electric for a while, and you got one. That's right. There's, well, you know, a lot of people protested when they took the cars away and had them destroyed, and uh, Toyota ended up selling a few of their cars, and uh, I think Ford sold a few of theirs as well. So those of those of us who, who, who thought, had really great experiences with the EV1 went out and bought these cars. So I've been driving an electric car for 10 years. And the big bonus on an electric car is because there's no internal combustion engine, there's never a tune-up, and there's never carburetor problems and engine problems. It's just batteries in the motor. And uh, many people, in the course of reporting our story, felt that this, this is the, the big threat to the auto industry. Is, is It kills their... Uh, potentially their, their aftermarket industry. Of course, uh, of course, one of the great uh, suspects judged guilty here is the California Air Resources Board, and it was really their decision to stop requiring zero-emission vehicles that knocked the legs out of the, underneath the EV-1. Yeah. Oh. There's, there's, kind of, uh, there's kind of like, in, the, in our murder mystery, there's sort of like two tragic figures <laughs> in a way. I mean, both California Air Resources Board and GM created these electric cars in the first place, and then uh, for completely different reasons, they uh, both went and... Uh, they gutted and destroyed the cars. And uh, it's, the California, I hope that they'll reconsider um, the electric car and stop throwing so much money at hydrogen, which the science just doesn't support uh, in the short term, and get these cars back on the road. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about hydrogen. Certainly, uh, uh, people like myself get a, a little suspicious when they see both the Bush and Schwarzenegger administrations uh, touting hydrogen as the fuel of the future. You point out you point out in the film that it's a great idea in theory, but it's years away from being practical. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I was all for hydrogen fuel cell technology, too. And then when I saw these guys all promoting it, I went, what's going on here? And certainly it was the bait and switch that got California to drop electric cars, and it's really too bad because uh, the scientists after scientists we talked to goes, listen, it's in theory terrific, but just making hydrogen itself takes three or four times more energy than if you just put that power directly into a battery. And the math doesn't work out. I think it's more of a play for special interests, and, and that's too bad. Well, the hybrid car, you started mentioning a moment ago about a cars now that, uh, that are combining electricity with conventional engines. Um, I imagine that you're all for this. 
Sure. Any any alternative to oil, I'm I'm in favor of yeah. checking out. Um, the biodiesel that folks are doing is a, is a great thing. Uh, we sort of found in the course of a story that the, the most efficient way to push a car and the fastest, you know, that EV1 went at like 150 miles an hour if you took the regulator off. It's amazing. Wow. Uh, ama- I mean, these cars are fast and they're smooth, they're efficient. There's just so much to like about them. The biodiesel and uh, they call it cellulosic ethanol and renewable, this and that, th- these are great things, but oftentimes they work most efficiently as a, as a, as a backup fuel when you have electricity as your primary fuel for the first 50 miles. Well, are you seeing uh, your, your documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car, getting people acting to go out and maybe get more hybrids and just in, and, and biodiesel, et cetera? You seeing people acting? I think that the number one thing pushing people to think about options is, is gas prices going up. Mm-hmm. And I think when people see our film, I think they feel really inspired about some options that they can, they can start thinking about and looking for in the marketplace. You know, the, the hybrid's terrific, although still, arguably, it's not all that it could be because... You can't plug it in. You have to go to the gas station to make it run. So Toyota and, and uh, the car companies are beginning to make noise, finally, about um, letting cars be plugged in. And I, I hope that trend continues and, and people are fired up about this. If, if the EV1 had been sold to the public and it was only leased, what, what do you, what do you, what's your best guess on what it, what it would cost? Well, it depends on they make, how many they make. Yeah. When they make uh, onesie twosies, like uh, this guy up in Spokane right now, he's a... Uh, he has an electric car that's you know should be twenty thousand dollars, but it costs a hundred thousand, right. and it takes fifty million dollars, or some say up to a billion dollars, to capitalize the cost of a new car. So the, I think GM claims on their website that they created to oppose our movie, and you can that uh, they you know they spend a billion dollars on the car, and it costs a hundred thousand dollars to make, but they were hand making these cars in small batches, and electric cars in you know production quantities are as cheap as gas cars because they have no engine. And basically, the batteries cost the same amount about as, as the engine and, and require no maintenance. So, that car, that EV1, and really, I think the list on it was like thirty-three thousand or something. But that cost, that car could easily come down below twenty thousand dollars if it was made in mass. Now, as far as I know, the hybrids are pretty much coming out of Japan. They were looking to, to head off uh, the American advances in that area. Where's the U.S. automakers standing on the whole thing? The U.S. automakers stand is that nobody wanted this technology; it wasn't ready, and. The, the Japanese, I, you know, to their credit, have hung in there, and that's why their hybrid. They lost money on it for the first few years, and now, you know, Toyota is the number two car maker in the world. They were number three and four, you know, only a few years ago. It just takes some longer-range planning, and I think the car U.S. car makers went wrong when they kept banking everything on sort of trucks and large cars. And now that people are, I don't want a car with 15 or 18 miles per gallon. Those cars are sitting on lots. Uh, maybe this is the wake-up call that they need to, to get back in the game and start making cars that we want. I was looking last year to buy a new car. I wound up settling on a Subaru, but I did take a look at the, the Toyota. It's the Prius, I believe. But it was quite a waiting list. Is that Are we seeing some improvement in that area? Are they more readily available? Ford, I don't know why they're doing this, but they're cutting back on their <laughs> SUV hybrid, which is actually a pretty good car. And uh, they claim that people aren't willing to pay an extra 1000 or $2 for a hybrid and you know, but meanwhile, Toyota is adding hybrid plants. So I just got a Prius myself fairly recently and didn't take that long to get it. I think you just have to really push for it and get one. And Honda has a good one, and, you know, GM claims to have some good ones coming up, but so far they haven't produced them. I want to return to this uh, a guy that I was so shocked to see in, in your film. In fact, he, he's the last person seen on screen, uh, Stanford uh, Oshinsky, I guess it's Oshinsky. Yeah. 
There was much talk in the late 70s about his amorphous semiconductors and how you create these strips that were much cheaper than conventional solar cells. And my God, if you could hook that up to, to electricity, what a boon that would be. You're right. Can I suggest a sequel to Who Killed Electric Car? Who Killed the, uh, the Amorphous Semiconductor? <laughs> yeah, Stanford is making this stuff now. And, and one of the really fun scenes for us in the movie was he took us on a quick tour of this amazing plant. And this is what they call a thin film solar cell. Yeah. They just make this by the mile. He, yeah. He just lays this, you know, this down. And it just, it's brilliant. Um, it's a cost competitive or less than any other kind of technology. And he's making real money on it. So the good news is it's out there and it's coming. But people have to start saying, hey, I want this for my house, and I want to do this. Well, I've got some space on my roof for one of these thin films, and I think I need to look at this. Where can, Should I go on the web? What should I do about that? Yeah, well, check out uh, whokilledtheelectriccar.com. It's got a lot of stuff on it. And uh, I, uh, Ovonics is uh, Stanford's company, so there's stuff on his side about that. And there's a lot of independent solar installers that can give people the, the data on different options. Um, one of the fun things that we all do with, uh, with our electric cars is we, uh, we charge them at night when there's there's excess power. In fact, people say there's 30 to 60 million cars that can be charged every night off of uh, peak power, off the existing grid. And then when everybody needs air conditioning, uh, you're selling the power off of your roof back to the power company. So you're almost, you know, as it were, making money and charging your car. Well, I believe me, like I, it's no joke. Back in the seventies, we kept talking about Oshinsky, Oshinsky, and then he just dropped out of sight. So I was so, I was just so glad to see him in your film. And isn't it amazing that the, like the oldest guy in our movie is one of the youngest, youngest in, this, in some ways in, in terms of his thinking? And then, and the fact that the nickel metal batteries are in all the Priuses now—that's all this technology. I mean, that guy was not passed up. The industry was idiotic to you know ignore him for so long. Well, it's great that you actually know that story. Very few, very few people do. Well, I kept thinking, whatever happened to Ovshinsky? So I mean, it was such a relief. Like there he is, and when I saw him on screen, it was very exciting for me. So in fact, we, yeah. we want him as a future guest on Radio Parallax. Really, in the eighties. A lot of the stuff went in the back seat because nobody would invest in it because oil was so cheap. Hopefully that's all changing now, um, especially in the U.S. Where, where we really need to get off oil. I wish our federal government and would you know really create a Manhattan Project for, uh, for getting our energy story back on track. We really need to, and uh, I, I hope our film is part of that because uh, people come out and they're really psyched about what they learn in the film, and, and uh, we had a good time making it. Well, Chris Payne, you, the, the, it's a great product. It's a great film. We're recommending that everyone go out and see it. Uh, we wish you the best, and thank you for your efforts. Okay, thanks for the shout-out. You know, with these documentaries, you know, live and die at the box office in the first week or two. So if it comes to when it gets to Davis and Sacramento, if you see it in the paper, go see it, because that's the week that, that makes all the difference in terms of the studio deciding to, like, uh, keep showing or not. So I, I hope people enjoy it and get out and see it. Well, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, having heard this, and, and are going to want to do exactly that, Chris. All right, so well, thanks, thanks so much for Radio Parallax, and I'll, uh, I'll hope to talk to you guys again. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.